Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for bringing us here. You've already done our hearts and souls a lot of good, and we are encouraged. We look now, God, to the, the main part, the opening of your word and the preaching of it, that you might teach us and Give us understanding and feed us what our souls are hungry for. God, we're going to move right along in the, Mark, in the Gospel of Mark into chapter 5. We pray, God, that what's happening is that we are coming more and more aware of our smallness before you and your bigness before us and our sinfulness against your holiness. And yet, as big of a problem as that is, you're, you're bigger in your love for us. And that Jesus is the answer. So God, strengthen our faith in this today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you would, turn in the Bible to Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5, if you didn't bring a Bible, it's page 923 in that black pew Bible there in front of you. I'm thankful for Scott Long, and he came back last week and did a great job. We didn't even have to get out of Mark. He just went with the next passage, and Scott did a great job preaching last Sunday. I'm thankful for him. I know y'all like it when he comes. I like hearing him preach. But he finished up chapter 4, which is the passage where Jesus calms a storm. And no doubt you see the authority of Jesus there. Today we're going to begin chapter 5. Go all the way through verse 20. One of my favorite things about Christianity is hearing other people's testimonies. I know you do too. You like to hear about how God has been working in your life and everybody's story is unique and different. So we can sit and listen to people all the time. We, we like that. Often in our church at several different, different times we have done what we call a Philippians 1-6 testimony. And that's when each Sunday we'll let a different person come up and share their story and we're going to get back to that here in the fall want to allow more people to be able to do that but you you guys love it that is very well received and y'all love hearing people speak about what Jesus has done in their lives and that's what we're going to see in this passage today but every once in a while you'll run across somebody who's sharing their testimony and it's not so much a testimony about what Jesus has done in their lives but rather just a testimony about their life and they can go on and on about all the things they've done. And a lot of times the testimony is, well, I used to be this bad, and then I, then I started being this good, and now I'm just trying my best to be this good. And somewhere in the middle of it, they throw in church, and you get to the end of it, and you've not really been impacted by something that God has done. We as Christians need to be, need to be aware that our testimony, as we, have, as we have sang about all morning, is that Jesus... It's changed our hearts and our lives. That is our testimony. In the story today in Mark chapter 5, we have a demoniac, a man who is possessed with demons. It's an ugly scene. And at the end of it, we have Jesus has changed him. And then Jesus tells him how he needs to go and live his life. You may or may not be able to connect with the the demon aspect of it. But I want you to connect with the sinfulness in your life and your need for Jesus, Jesus working, and then telling him how to move forward. Three points for you today. The need for Jesus in our helplessness. The authority of Jesus over everything. And the mercy of Jesus over our sinfulness. The need for Jesus in our helplessness, the authority of Jesus over everything, and the mercy of Jesus over our sinfulness. If you would, please read with me at Mark chapter 5. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes, and when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. 
night and day among the tombs and on the mountains. He was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? And he replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Matthew and Luke also tell this story. It's in all three of the Synoptic Gospels. Mark's account is the deepest and the fullest. In our New Testament reading that Austin read, we read Matthew's account, and you can see it wasn't near as much. It was only eight, eight or nine verses. Here we have 20 verses teaching us this. Mark is known for the short gospel where he dealt, tells everything really quickly, doesn't give as much detail, just wants you to get the point. But on this passage, the healing of this man who is demon-possessed, he is thorough, and there's a lot here. Jesus has already healed demon-possessed people. Jesus already dealt with demons in Mark's gospel. That's not new to us. I want to begin with number one, the need for Jesus in our helplessness. Jesus had come to the other side. Now you remember what Mark preached last week. Look up at chapter 4 verse 35, probably the same page. Jesus on that day when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And then what Scott preached on last week was what happened while they were traveling, right? What happened in the boat. And see here today, we pick up at chapter 5, and it says they reached the other side. So it's moving right along. They came to the other side. Jesus stepped out of the boat immediately, and there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. So an awkward situation arises. Jesus gets out of the boat, and he's walking on land, and, and a man has come up to him, and, 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 and it's, a, it's a man with an unclean spirit that has come out of the tombs. I don't know if you like to hang around cemeteries, but I don't too much. This man did. He, he liked it. That's what he did. He was among the tombs, and he had an unclean spirit in him. The next verse, verse 3, says that he lived there. He didn't just hang out there. That's where he hung. The devil is the, uh, the, the author of death, the Bible teaches us. Jesus says in John chapter 10 that the devil wants to kill you, steal you, and destroy you. He's working on killing your soul. This man, possessed by the devil, lived where dead people were. And no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. And then, then Mark explains that. That they had tried many times to bind him with a chain, shackles and chains, but he could break those apart and he was so strong. Now many times you think, well that's not realistic. But perhaps you've never seen a demon possessed man. The devil is strong, and the devil inside of somebody can be incredibly strong, stronger than, than humans. So is the case here. This man could not be kept by chains. He would break the shackles and break the chains. And then look what Mark says in verse 4, and he says this so that you would understand who's about to deal with him. No one had the strength to subdue him. 
This man was unique. This man's problem was very problematic. This man could not be stopped, contained, controlled. He did whatever the devil led him to do. Sleep with dead people, break chains. He was unstoppable in his problems. Our need for Jesus in our helplessness. You may not be demon-possessed. The Bible says that our hearts are dead in our trespasses and sins and that we are sinful to the core. There's nobody who runs to God, searches for God, nobody who loves God. We need God to come and overcome our helplessness. We cannot help ourselves. And this man is in a similar situation. Verse 5 gives us an even deeper description of him. One that one commentary said is perhaps the worst state of a man in the entire Bible. Look at verse 5. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. That's sad. So you would think that this man who is demon-possessed, who is so strong, is probably happy or content or at least about what he is about. But this verse tells us that's not the case. He is miserable. He has no looking up. He, don't know, he doesn't know how to fix himself. He is truly helpless. And yet, maybe not by demons, maybe so by demons. I know many people who come to mind when I think of verse 5 crying night and day. Perhaps that's you. Perhaps that's some family member. All they do is cry. They cry out night and day. He also loved to inflict pain. This is a sign of the devil for sure. The devil wants to hurt you, and even when you think it's a good thing, it's really a bad thing. He wants to hurt you. He would cut himself with stones. This man's torment and this man's suffering and this man's misery was huge. Verse 5 is a very dark picture. Yet he has come to Jesus. Jesus steps out of the boat, steps on land, and he's come to Jesus. And in verse 6 it says, When he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before Jesus. If you came here today... Not yet totally captivated by the King Jesus. Please pay attention. There is nobody, nobody like our God. There is nobody like the God-man Jesus. There is nobody who possesses God inside a human frame. Jesus is the only one. It was pleasing to God for the fullness of God to dwell in man, Jesus. Jesus is God. And this man who humans were afraid of, who lived with dead people, who chains could not bind him, who was awake in the tombs and screaming and crying all night, and who would just take rock, rocks and sharpen them and, and cut himself and just rage in pain and suffering and misery so that people were freaked out by him and scared by him and couldn't do anything with him. When he saw Jesus afar, he ran and fell down before him. Jesus didn't flex his muscles. Jesus didn't shake his finger. It was Jesus, and he ran and fell down before him. Now, this is so common. Turn back to chapter 1. In chapter 1, verse 23, we see Jesus in uh, the, the, the synagogue, and a similar thing happens. Verse 23, immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, saying, what authority is this? 
You remember the one in chapter 2 where the house was so crowded, they brought the paralyzed man through the roof? Jesus does a similar thing. Turn back to chapter 5. Look at verse... Twenty-two. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing Jesus, he did what? He fell at his feet. Look at verse 33 here in chapter 5. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth we're in one little book math of mark we're in one chapter five we see needy people and we see demon possessed people we see crying people and quiet people and yet we see a lot of falling down before him one of the most memorable passages to me in all of scripture is revelation chapter one when John is on exile in the island of Patmos and he's there until he dies because he's been captured and this is some of the torture and persecution for him. And while on the island of Patmos, John, the apostle John, uh, receives a revelation from Jesus. It is the book of Revelation. And when Jesus comes to him to tell him the book of Revelation, the Bible says that John immediately fell down before his feet as if he was dead. And Jesus says, don't be afraid, and then begins to talk to him. But time after time after time again in the Bible, you have people from all different walks. You have the Apostle John, you have the demon-possessed man here in Mark chapter 5, and you've got everything in between falling down before Jesus and crying out in our neediness, in our helplessness, in our desperation, God, I need you. Nothing else matters. I need you, God. I'll never forget Josh Powell preaching to us through the, through the book of Joshua when the commander of the Lord's army in the book of Joshua showed up. Joshua fell down at his feet as though dead. This is so common in the Bible that we must pay attention to it. There is a helplessness out of people that recognizes a greatness in God that doesn't allow us to just come to God with our arrogance and our postures and act like, well, I'm going to do some Christianity if Jesus' Christianity helps me with my life that I'm already doing. Baloney with that. Get a vision of your helplessness before God and run to Him and fall down at His feet. Just a few weeks ago, I had one of our college students ask me, how do I become more godly? I didn't really know a good answer. I said, set your eyes on Jesus and run. That's what I told him. Set your eyes on Jesus and run. And the faster you get running, everything on the side that distracts you will become more blurry. This guy, sleeping in the tombs, possessed by demons, stronger than chains, messed up, hurts himself. This guy ran to Jesus from afar, ran and fell down before him. Now again, you may not be demon-possessed, but you may be lonely. You feel like you sleep among the tombs because you don't have anybody to talk to. You may cry all day and all night. You may like pain and suffering so much that you even inflict it upon yourselves, on yourself like he does. Or maybe you're so stubborn, you're also like him. No one had the strength to subdue him. The equivalent of that these days is perhaps you can't tell him anything. He's just going to do what he's going to do. There's no getting into his head. He's always been that way. Josh, I'm telling you, I've been married to this man 40 years and it ain't ever changing. How many times have I heard people say that? This man was that way as well. 
No one had the strength to subdue him. I want to ask you realistically, have you come to Jesus? In your heart, have you ran there? Have you ever laid down spiritually or physically? Have you ever laid down? You ever had one of those fights at home where you're not getting along and you start thinking, man, we're, we're messed up. This ain't how family's supposed to be. This ain't how dads are supposed to be. This ain't how husbands are supposed to be. And so you find a room and shut the door and you lay on your face and you just say, God, help me. Have you ever done that? Does your heart do it daily? Do you cry out for God like this? Or is your attitude still, well, I pray, but he doesn't answer. I go to church and nothing gets better. Have you come to him? Have you fallen down before him like this man and, and, and recognize that something's not right in you and that you know he's the one that can fix it before he even does? Have you seen him for who he is? Do you recognize power in him and helplessness in you? One thing clear in this passage is that this man is helpless and he needs Jesus, so he runs and falls down before him. The next part of our passage is the, is the bulk and the heaviness. It is the authority of Jesus over everything, including our weaknesses. Look at verse 7. Crying out with a loud voice, here's what he said. So he's, he's laying down now before Jesus. He ran there. He, he connected himself to Jesus. Jesus didn't get on the island and say, okay, now where are these demon-possessed people at? We're going to get them. No, Jesus got out of the boat. The man came to him, falls down at his feet, and here's what he says. What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. And this is fascinating. Now, we know that the demons recognize who Jesus is. They always do this. There are many passages in Scripture. The demons do. James makes this point. Listen to me. James makes this point to use it against people who say they believe in God. In the book of James, you have people saying that they believe in God, so they think they're right with God. And James speaks up and says, enough with that. The demons believe in God. They don't worship him. They don't fall down and worship him. The demons are scared of him and they shudder, James says. So don't give me that you believe in God. The Bible's asking, do you worship Jesus at his feet out of desperation and need for his mercy? That's what the Bible's asking for. And James picks up on that. Well, here, like I read in, in chapter 1, now we see it in chapter 5, these demons know a lot. These demons seem to have somewhat of a, of a theology, a systematic theology. They know God. What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? And it, it starts to show us that the demons have not come to fight. There is no fight here. The demons have not come to say, well, we're a big bad guy, guy too, Jesus. You, you ready to go at this? We're going to take you out. There, there never is that. There's no confrontation here. Martin Luther in the 1500s said, remember this church, even the devil is God's devil. The devil has no power over Jesus, none. None. Now, it's hard for us to understand, but God lets the devil do some things so that Christ can show his power over it. And sometimes we may disagree with what God chooses to do, but it is all working for our good and for his glory. And we recognize this here because the demons are saying, don't do this. What are you going to do with us? And then they ask him to do something. They ask him to not torment them. And this is fascinating. And I want to show you that one of the commentators picks up on this. He says, Mark has already told his readers that the demons know who Jesus is. So this demonic confession here along with the others in the gospel of mark are truly reliable spokesmen he goes on he says in an exorcism the technical term here a juror usually comes from the exorcist and is directed at the demon so you would think that jesus is going to use this talk at the demon he says here however i adjure you by god is reversed it comes from the demon and is directed at jesus mark is wanting us to see that this powerful demon is scared and submissive at the power of Jesus. The powerful, life-wrecking, life-ruining, life-tormenting demon is scared and bowing down and begging to God Almighty. God Almighty, folks, is truly God. 
He is powerful and strong and great and holy. And he can do whatever he wants. And he will do whatever he wants. And he will judge the world, yet he loves us and sent Christ to forgive us of our sins. And you see all of this coming up here. Verse 8 tells us that the reason why the demon is saying that, or the man possessed by the demon is saying that, is because Jesus had already said, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. So there then is a conversation. The demon is scared. In verse 9, we have the cool, calm, and collected peacemaker, meek and mild God-man, Jesus says. What is your name? He replied with a statement that lets us know that this was weird and, and awkward. He says, my name is Legion, for we are many. And at this point, if you hadn't recognized already, you would have thought, this guy's odd. If somebody came to me and said, what's your name, man? I said, I'm Josh. We're a happy people. You'd have thought, come again? And you'd have gotten away as quickly as you could and said to whoever you're with, that guy ain't right. Jesus, though, knows more about this man than this man does. When you're helpless, you think, I'm going to try things that certainly aren't going to work, and maybe they'll work. You understand that about being helpless? This man thinks, maybe I'll cut myself and that'll help. When you're helpless, you don't get it. Jesus knows the answer to this guy's problems. Jesus knows that. So he says, what is your name? He says, my name is Legion, and we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out, entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The devil here is doing something that's very awkward and uncomfortable to us. The devil here is killing pigs and running from Jesus. But what we have going on here is a picture of Jesus' authority that's all over the place. I want to remind you that just in the passage before, you have the sleeping Jesus in the boat who comes out and, 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 and really kind of simply says to the, to the storm, the storm that has scared fishermen, peace be still. And the winds and the waves obeyed, and everybody stands back and says, who is this that even the winds and the waves obey him? I want to remind you of the passage in chapter 1 that we've already read in the synagogue where he healed the guy and they said, who is this that he would teach with such authority that a demon-possessed man would be healed? I want to remind you when they healed the paralyzed man, they said, who is this that he can forgive sins? Or he could say, take up your mat and walk. He can do either one. Who is this guy? And so now with the demon-possessed man, we have yet again. But we don't have Jesus coming as if the demon-possessed man is confrontational and wanting to fight and thinking that the, that the demons are stronger than Jesus. There's not even a picture of that. You have the Lord Jesus commanding and demanding and complete control. Anybody else ever, the worst guys you know, the strongest guys you know, getting out of a boat and immediately stepping on land and running into this would have been taken back and afraid. And Jesus talks to him and even asks him, what's his name? He didn't go on the defensive. He didn't pull out a weapon. He didn't say, oh, stop. Hey, y'all get back. I'm going to protect you. He just handles him because he's God. He's great and he's glorious. And we see this here. But notice the, 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 the horrible position that this man is in. He's there, and you, you don't even get a clear taste of what the man is like apart from the demons. The demons have consumed him. His helplessness is there. His weakness is there, and Jesus is dealing with him. One of my favorite commentators, J.C. Ryle, says, Such is the state to which the devil would bring us all, if only he had the power. Listen, the devil would rejoice to inflict upon us the utmost misery, both of body and mind. Listen to this statement. Cases like this one in Mark 5 are faint types 
of the miseries of hell. I had not thought about that. In all of my preparation on this, I had not thought about how miserable he was. It was just barely what hell would be like. This seems to be about as bad as we know. One commentator said that Mark 5, 5 is the worst description of a man in the Bible. And yet Ryle reminds us that cases like this are faint types of the miseries of hell. This would be a good day in hell. This would be vacation. This would be joyful in hell. To be needy, to be needy and helpless and weak and hurting and suffering and lost and desperate and crying and loving being around the dead and yet not look up to the loving Christ who died for your sins to forgive you of them. To not look to the one who gives mercy. I want to remind you of Ephesians chapter 2. You don't have to turn there, you can just listen. Paul, in speaking about our need for Jesus and for grace and for faith to save us, forgive us of our sins based off of God's grace, sets that up in Ephesians 2 by speaking about the, the, the sinfulness that we all are in. And he does a good job of explaining sinfulness as being who we are and our rebelliousness combined with the devil's working. That's all there in Ephesians 2. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Listen. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, that's the devil, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So we ought not to look at Mark chapter 5 and this demon-possessed man and, and think, well, I mean, that's a neat story, but this man is so other that I've never known anybody like that or seen anything like that that it really doesn't connect to my life. Instead, I want you to think, well, you may not be demon-possessed, but I certainly am needy, and the devil certainly works in my life, and I do sin, and I'm helpless, and I need Jesus like this guy. But then I want you to see, <clears throat> I want you to see that the authority of Jesus is over everything, including our weakness. It, it does not make sense for you as a believer in God to think that God can calm the storm on a, on a boat, but he cannot answer my problems. It doesn't make sense for us to understand that God created the world and spoke it into being, but when we start crying at night, we think that God is not there for us. No, I want you to be somebody who believes in the real authority of Jesus. I want you to find comfort and strength as a believer in Christ that his authority answers all of your problems. When this happened in verse four, in the end of verse 13, verse 14 picks up now everybody else's response. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and so people came to see what it was that had happened. That's just the way it goes, y'all know that. If something wild happens, even if it's terrible, everybody wants to see, right? You ever been in traffic on like Gene Snyder and you think, why is everybody going so slow? And you finally get up there to what it was and it's nothing in the road. It's just something way over there on the other lane, like somebody's on the side talking to a cop and everybody's just slow as can be right there. And you're like, get on with it, people. But then when you get up there, you the same thing. And that's why we're so slow. Everybody wants to see, so here's what happens here. People came to see what it was that had happened. Verse 15, they came to Jesus and they saw this guy. The demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion. So they knew it was him, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. What a, what a picture right there. And here's where I began with the whole testimony thing, and here's where this man starts to have a testimony, right? They, they saw him, yeah, that, that's him. That that, 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 that demon-possessed guy with, got it, cuts himself, cries all the time, screams, runs around, the ones that have been chained several times, the chains came Is that him? Yeah, that's him. And you can just kind of picture, they, they keep their distance for sure, but you can just kind of picture, like, he looks normal now. He looks fine. He looks better. And you know the question that every single person, every single person would ask. What happened? 
what happened to you? What's changed? What's the difference? What's made the difference? Sitting there, they're not used to him sitting still, calm, clothed. They're not used to him wearing clothes. In his right mind, they're not used to him being in his right mind. And so they were afraid. Isn't that a cool thought? Are these scaredy cats or has Jesus changed a life? They see a normal guy and now they're afraid. Amen. To the powerful testimony of God changing a life. I hope that some of our families are so messed up that when we get a little bit more normal, they're shocked. I hope that when you start keeping your word and letting your yes be yes and paying your bills on time and not stealing and being encouraging and not complaining and being thankful, I hope when just a normal godliness starts to come out of you, people are like, what happened to you? We got a college student that doesn't attend our church. I hardly know them has been coming every week this summer to our college Bible study. We have college Bible study every two weeks throughout the year, uh, and it's, it's awesome. But during the summer, since there's so many college students around and free, we have it every single Wednesday night, and sometimes it's you know, three hours, nine to 12 type of thing at night. It's awesome. We have deep Bible study, something like this, every single time that we're together. And there's been some people coming that don't even go to our church, just around here, and they've heard about it. They've got some friends from schools or things like that, and on Friday, I got an email from a parent. Never had talked to the parent before, ever, never once. Never had emailed them, don't know them, didn't even know their name, nothing. So zero contact with this person ever before. I got an email this long. Our daughter is a changed girl. The teaching of the Word of God all summer long has changed her. The example of many of your other college students has been such a real, authentic witness to her of people that love and follow Jesus that she has been changed this summer. She went on and on. She didn't become better or more radical to, 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 to make the point even more true. She's a super quiet person, but her being a little bit more normal, I guess, so to speak, with her family has caused her mom to email somebody she's never spoken to before, has caused the mom to say, Jesus is changing her, and I want to tell the pastor about it. Commentator Stein says, when he was possessed by demons, listen to this, the man lived among the dead. He was uncontrollable. He screamed and cried and afflicted wounds upon himself. Now, he's able to go home, live with his family and friends. The power of Jesus. Hey, if your family's like mine, there's some drama. If your family's like mine, there's some heartache. The closer you get to Jesus, the better family member you should be. The closer you get to Jesus, the more obedient to mom and dad you should be. The more loving you should be. The more helpful you should be. The more drama squashing you should be. They find this man clothed and in his right mind. Verse 16, and those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. So now there are eyewitnesses now telling the people that have come what actually happened. So he runs up to Jesus and he falls down and they're crying out to Jesus and Jesus under, under control just says this and the demons say this. And so next thing you know, he sends them out of the man and now the man's fine. It's crazy. There's only one response now, right? Jesus. Number one, the need for Jesus and our helplessness. Number two, the authority of Jesus over everything, even our weaknesses. Number three, the mercy of Jesus over our sinfulness. You may be asking, okay, so what? You may be wondering, why did he do this? Or now, what does it matter? If I like to be demon-possessed, leave me there. If I like to be crying and miserable like some people do. My mom used to say that misery loves company. I'm sure you've heard that. My day's terrible. I want to complain about it until you realize your day's going to be terrible too. But you still might be asking, what's the whole point? Why? And so now we see, look at verse 17. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. I, I, I know we're running out of time, but I, I got to comment on this verse. Listen, 
Y'all, this ought to open your eyes. Jesus made this man better, and they still don't want him around. Church, we've got to realize this. Jesus rocks the boat. And at your workplace, the boat might get rocked. Jesus changes things for the good, and sometimes people don't like it. I've told y'all the story before about my good friend in college. There was this girl. She got saved, and her life was changed. She did a summer mission trip. She was memorizing scripture, doing all of this. And her parents had grown up going to church, but I don't think they'd ever been saved. They were going to church, but they weren't saved. They didn't love Jesus. They just went to church. Y'all know what I mean. And Jesus changed this girl's life when she was 18, 19, 20 years old. And she was growing like crazy. And she got home one day. Her mom and dad were waiting for her and said, we, we just need to have a little talk. Here's what they say. They said, look, we, we, we like that you're getting all religious, but it seems like you being so into it means that we're not. And you need to settle down a little bit. And you need to find you a happy medium. I mean, it's okay to do some of the things that we do, and it's okay for us to miss church, and we still believe in God and all that. And they crushed her. They told her, you need to find a happy medium and settle down. You don't have to be a sellout in order to live for Jesus. Now, Jesus does that. You get your life all about Jesus and start saying no to some things, you have some other people who don't like it. Jesus starts doing good things in your family. You might have other people in the family that are now mad or jealous about you, and you didn't bring it upon you. This demon-possessed man, from our perspective, was a problem in the town, wasn't he? Yes. So Jesus heals him, cleans him up, gets him all good. He's at home now. He can hang out with his family and friends, all that good stuff. And the people are saying, Jesus, get out of here. It's too much drama. We don't like it. We were just fine and dandy the way we were without Jesus. Get out of our region. Folks, may we not be that. May we be okay with rocking the boat. I loved it when KB said, I don't want to rock the boat. I want to sink the boat. I want to get rid of everything that you think is normal, good, and comfortable. And I want to bring Jesus into it and say there's a new way of living that I want to be tunnel vision for me. The glory of God. He loves me. He loves me. That's an old song. It's hymn 547 in the hymnal that Joe just did. Joe, great job with it. I stand amazed in the presence. And the chorus never, ever gets old or bad. How marvelous, how wonderful, and my song shall ever be. How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. Jesus loves us, and he loves us, and he loves us. And that is the answer to life, not our happy little comfortable lives. And if all we God is our happy little comfortable lives then we need the boat to be rocked and if it needs to happen around here in Fairdale in our neighborhoods in our streets in your family I know your, your, your families and streets and schools I know that all of our schools and streets and families and all that have been nice and good for a long time but we need Jesus in them and so may we never be those in verse 17 who are saying they began to beg Jesus to depart from the region hey things were fine here before Jesus came around things were fine here before the churches were fine and strong and vibrant and healthy and making a difference in the world may that not be us I realize that you hope your mom and dad and children are going to heaven. But hoping often means you also doubt. And if you're never going to bring it up, y'all might be in trouble. Let's not ask Jesus to get away. Let's get close to Jesus. Verse 18, as he was getting into the boat, so Jesus is leaving this is interesting, like, why did he even go there? <laughs> Remember? He was on the other side of the boat. He said, y'all go get in the boat, wait for me, we're going to the other side. The only reason they were in the boat is so that he could calm the storm. He gets to the other side, as soon as he steps out, the man meets him there, he heals the man, and then it says, he's getting back in the boat. Is Jesus living on mission, or is Jesus living on mission? Does Jesus have a purpose for every single thing that he's doing in your life? Or what is going on here? Did he have a change of plans? Did this, did, did this disrupt things? Did it take so much time that now he didn't go get to do what he wanted to do? I don't think so. Jesus is living out the call of God to teach us how dynamic he is that we also would fall down at his feet. Jesus is getting back in the boat at verse 18. Look at this. The man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him, right? Good, good, 
good desire, right? I think I would too. If Jesus changed your life that much, and moments later Jesus getting back in the boat to leave, wouldn't you be saying, I'm going with you, buddy. These people don't even want me here. They don't want you here. They're looking at me like I'm strange. They're scared of me. I don't have any friends except for the dead people in the grave. Where am I going to go? Can I get in the boat with you? And look at Jesus' answer. He did not permit him. Jesus said no. He said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he's had mercy on you. Joe, you hit the nail on the head with the song, Your Mercy. It was new to me too, but a song that cries out, Your Mercy is exactly it. Jesus says, go tell your friends and family all that the Lord has done for you and how he's had mercy on you. Church, if you think that your witness is about you being big and bad and holy, it's not. If you think you being a witness is knowing how to say the right things, because that's what I hear y'all say the most, I don't know what to say. You being an awesome, faithful witness is telling how much the Lord has done for you. And he woke me up and gave me this wife and gave me these kids, and half the time I'm a bad dad, and they, they still love me, and Never had a church before, but he gave me a church, and y'all love me. I mean, this is just what the Lord has done. Jesus makes it simple when you're witnessing, folks. Go say what the Lord has done. Tell how he's had mercy on you. You know what that means? That means talk about how hard-headed and sinful and how much of a bad attitude you have. That's all it is. Don't brag about how good you are, which is what we think witnessing is. Baloney. When Christians brag about how obedient they are, the world thinks arrogance uppity, haughty, holier than thou. He's not saying that. Bragging on mercy means he forgave me for that. I mean, I got to tell y'all, sometimes I'm a bad dad and sometimes I'm a bad husband and sometimes I'm forgetful. I had a counseling meeting this week on Tuesday at 4 o'clock. 4 o'clock, 4.15, I'm driving down the road. They called me up. Hey, Josh, we're just waiting here at the church for you. I said, oops, so sorry. I'd forgotten. I was going on to the next thing. And I'd forgotten. That's a bad pastor. That's bad time management. That's forgetfulness. And if y'all don't fire me for it, then the Lord had mercy. The Lord had mercy on me. That couple is here this morning. They still showed up. They didn't quit on me or quit on Jesus or quit on church. They're here. They had mercy on me. Brag on the mercy of God that's keeping you going despite your screw-ups. He gives us chances he has hope. He loves us. Nobody in here has got it all figured out yet. So keep telling people that God loves you even though you don't have it figured out. Man, I love my church. Everybody there is a mess. But he's got mercy on us. And that's what Jesus told him to do. And you know what? He did. He didn't say, oh, come on, Jesus. What am I going to do back here with these bums, man? It's better with you. Verse 20. So he went away, obedience, what an obedient heart. He went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. Everyone marveled at his testimony of a merciful God. L let me assure you of something. You start speaking about the merciful Savior that you have, and people will take notice. Again, you start talking about your self-righteousness and all that you do. You start telling everybody you teach Sunday school and you do this and you tithe your money to church and you always go to church and your Wednesday nights are taken up because you're Wednesday night people. You start bragging about all of that and they're going to be like, go on and on. But you start speaking about a merciful Savior and people are going to be taken back. Everyone marveled at the humility in this man. Everyone did. Now, listen. The Decapolis, i got to tell you this, is a league on the other side of the sea of ten Gentile cities. This is fascinating. You wouldn't have known it. See, in Mark, Jesus tells everybody he heals, don't tell anybody. Remember that? Jesus in Mark tells everybody, don't tell anybody. Now, you need to be quiet. Now, they never listen. They go tell everybody what Jesus has done. But Jesus is always saying, don't. Remember Mark 1.45, Jesus told the man, don't tell anybody, and he went and told everybody, and then Mark 1.45 says, now Jesus cannot even enter cities because there's so many crowds. 
the, the ministry of Jesus has been hindered by everybody knowing. But around the Jews, Jesus, in, in, in Jewish lands, Jesus had a goal to get to the cross. He didn't want anybody getting in the way. He didn't want anything to mess that up. Jesus kept saying, don't tell anybody. But on the other side of the water, where they weren't Jewish, they didn't believe the Bible. They didn't believe about a Savior coming. They never heard about it. Jesus tells that one fellow, go tell them all. Spread the message. Declare my mercy. There's a Savior for Jews and Gentiles. There's a Savior for everybody in the world. Go tell them about my mercy. This right here, nobody talks about it. This right here is the first missionary commissioned out by Jesus to the Gentiles. Now, the Apostle Paul's coming in the book of Acts. But this right here is Jesus telling this man to go and tell it, and he does. Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he's had mercy on you. Here's what I see all the time, and we're done. I see all the time with you all. You telling me about how much you're trying to get somebody to come to church. I, Josh, I keep telling them to come to church. And then I get around them and you pat them on the shoulder and say, sure wish you'd come to church and hear old brother Josh with us. And I see that all the time. Listen, stop inviting them to church. Start telling them about all of God's mercy in your life. Now, don't really stop inviting people to church. But change your approach. Start telling about the mercy. Love your spouse and tell them, thank you for loving me even though you don't got it all together. Love your kids while telling them that you realize you're not the best mom and dad out there. Highlight God's mercy. Jesus doesn't love First Baptist Fairdale because we're such a good church. <laughs> he loves us. Because we're so wayward and so prideful and so sinful. That's what we want people to know. Jesus is a great Savior. Would you trust him today? Let's pray. Father, Jesus changed this man's life. Jesus' mercy toward his wayward, sinful, helpless position And God, thank you for your mercy. God, thank you that you saved me when I was a teenager. God, we pray that here today we would come with whatever our waywardness looks like, our helplessness. We would bow down before you, knowing your authority to save, and that we would trust in your mercy. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. As we sing this final song, let's, let's respond. And I pray